Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. We're not dealing with challenges that are unique to MLB. We're dealing with global challenges that people are facing at some scale and at some level throughout the entire world. We've got a special treat today for you on the Sidcast. Last week, you know, I had two guests on the first episode of season two, both of the so-called nerdy girls who are running the Dear Pandemic Facebook page. This week, I also have two people on the show, and this time it's a father and a son, Ron and Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro, of course, is the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. Loyal listeners may recall that Mark was a guest on the Sidcast back in uh, July of last year uh, when we lived in a very, very very different world where there was baseball and stadiums with fans and everything else that we uh, that we know about sports. Today, the story is very, very different. All sports teams, sports leagues are trying to figure things out. When are they going to return to play? How are they going to uh, how are they going to do that? The NBA, the NHL, the NFL uh, soccer leagues. Uh, it looks like um, lately there's been real flurry of rumors and announcements and it looks like sports is, is going to come back uh, finally. But to try to understand what's going on and how, how do you come up with the right formula that can work? Turns out to be a very complicated uh, question. It's not like you can just start, you know, turn on, turn on the switch and all of a sudden you start playing. You have to think about uh, testing. You have to think about the right format. You got to think about the, the business model, about compensation, all of those issues and many, uh, many others. It's not simple. And actually, if you look at what some of the sports leagues have been talking about so far, the NHL going right into a, um, to the playoffs and the NBA potentially going into uh, kind of what what they do in uh, the Champions League uh, and World Cup soccer with different uh, different brackets, uh, really really different uh, models, and uh, and baseball playing their games. Who knows where and in what format? A shortened season, and then and then to the playoffs uh, with some adjustments. So it's not it's not a simple thing. You know, if you think about it, there there are teams, right? And and those teams are part of the league, and there's an associate uh, an association of owners, and there are players who are represented by agents and also represented by uh, by their union and it turns out their interests do not always align in fact major league baseball probably has less trust between ownership and players in some of the other some of the other leagues i mean it's not absolutely correct there have been strikes in all sports i think over the last 20 years or um, but baseball there seems to be a bit more of a misalignment uh, and and that's something we're going to talk about today as well. Actually, you can go back to baseball strikes, the infamous strike in Major League Baseball in 1994. And that changed everything in baseball, changed everything for me as a baseball fan, actually, and many, many other fans and how they rooted for their teams and even whether they would continue to root for their teams. In 1994, you know, I grew up, I've said this in, in maybe some other episodes of, of the podcast, but I grew up in Montreal in Canada. And um, in Montreal, we had a team called the Montreal Expos, Major League Baseball team, started in 1969. I kind of grew up with the team. I love that team. And in 1994, the Expos had the best record in Major League Baseball, the best in the 
National League, the best in the American League, and uh, it was a powerhouse team. And many of those players, by the way, ended up going to other teams and winning World Series and those other teams afterwards. Then the strike hit and the season ended. There was no coming back. And uh, it really damaged uh, the sport, especially in Montreal. And, you know, many people have said this who know who know the sport, but I don't think the, uh, the sport of baseball ever really recovered in Montreal from that strike, from that disaster. It gives you a sense of what happens when you disrupt sports leagues. And, and now, of course, because of COVID, everyone understands why this is happening. It's the right thing to do to not have, you know, canceled seasons or postponed seasons. But getting fans back and interested and ready to be part of it and coming up with a business model that works when no one can be in the seat, no one can be in the seats. And, you know, Major League Baseball, I think, generates close to a third of, it, of their revenue from uh, concessions and ticket sales and uh, and the like and that's that's a lot and how are you going to uh, how are you going to manage that but let me let me get back to the having a father and a son as my two guests uh, today it actually turns out to be really really interesting. Mark Shapiro, the Blue Jays CEO, you know, he uh, asks him a question. He answers the question. Uh, and then his father, Ron, chimes in and says, you know, Sid, let me tell you the backstory to that. So they kind of catch each other as we're going through the conversation, which is really great. That interplay between father and son is actually quite wonderful to see and to hear, not only because it has a lot of nuance, but because of the emotional bonds between these two men that's really palpably meaningful. It's it's strong. Ron Shapiro's story is uh, is really a great one as well. Ron, the dad, expert negotiator, sports agent, an attorney, an educator, uh, New York Times bestselling author, civic leader, graduate from Harvard Law School back in 1967. Sporting News named Ron Shapiro one of the, quote, 100 most powerful people in sports, end quote. As an agent, he had a list of clients that included more Hall of Famers than any other agent. Cal Ripken Jr., Jim Palmer, Brooks Robinson, who was his first uh, client, Kirby Puckett, Eddie Murphy, and, uh, and actually the 2009 American League MVP, Joe Maurer from the Minnesota Twins. Ron was telling me that collectively, those players uh, earned more than a billion dollars in contracts that Ron Ron helped negotiate on their behalf. He's uh, he's been involved in other sports as an advisor for the NFL's the, ba- the Baltimore Ravens, uh, for the uh, NBA San Antonio Spurs, and other uh, other NBA teams as well. He's written books, best-selling books about negotiations. He's been on TV, on ABC, Good Morning America, on ESPN, uh, many other media outlets, and uh, he's also received all kinds of honors and recognition. He's been very very active on charitable boards and civic associations, and actually was the recipient in uh, 2013 of the the American Red Cross Lifetime Achievement Award, which is really fantastic. So Ron and Ron and Mark, and you know, uh, I like when, you know, listeners, including myself, and when I re-listen to the episode, when we listen to, you know, what I said, what the guest says, and the conversations, and some of the things that, uh, that you know, we might reflect on and, um, and make us think about our own lives as well. And, and for me in this episode, uh, I was, uh, I was really, you know, impressed and I was happy to see how the, this father and son interacted with so much respect and, and caring. And of course, you know, it made me think about my own dad who 
passed away more than more than 20 years ago. And uh, we had very, very different lives long before that as well. He was a classic provider. He worked hard and he worked long so that we would have a home and food on the table. It was as simple as that. And, and you know, when you're a kid, you don't really know better. You only know what you know in your own house. Uh, whatever goes on is the way it is. And you think, well, that's the way it is for every family. But as you get older, you start to uh, go out of the house more. And uh, you might be invited to some friends' houses for dinner or sleepovers. And you start going to school and meeting more people and building relationships with all kinds of different people. And you discover, or, or at least I did, how different my family was from everyone, uh, from most other people. Over time, I came to absolutely respect what my father did for me and for my brothers. He wasn't flashy. He lived a very simple life, really as basic a life as can be. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a car. We never went on any vacations, uh, but he worked hard and he did what he thought his role was. And it turns out to be a pretty, you know, a very critical role to be that provider, to put a roof over our heads and food on the table. And, and that, you know, that's something to be proud of. And I'm, I'm proud of him. One other note. We recorded this podcast 10 days ago on May 27th. You may be listening to this, um, this episode long after uh, the date that it's released, June 7th. But that's important. I don't usually talk about, you know, exact timing of when I'm, I'm recording the podcast. But uh, it's important today for this episode because when we're talking about the start of Major League Baseball, decisions and debates are, on, are, are ongoing. Between the date that we recorded the episode and even today, 10 days later, a lot of new information is no doubt uh, coming out. And uh, so listeners, it's interesting because listeners can judge for themselves how reality is matched up with the planning and the preparing of, of those few days earlier. Finally, for all the reasons I've already mentioned, it's really been one of the most fun episodes for me to do. Uh, as I said, seeing a father and son interact made me feel warm inside. And it was a reminder, as if anyone needs a reminder about family in, in the age of the coronavirus, just what a bond can look like between two people who really, really love each other, a bond that's stronger than anything else that man or woman has ever invented. Maybe because we didn't invent it, we, we inherited it. It's in our DNA. And that's, uh, that's a wonderful thing. Ron Shapiro joined me for our conversation on the sitcast from his home in Philadelphia and Mark Shapiro, his son, from Toronto. As usual, I sat at my dining room table at home. Enjoy the episode. I'm here with Ron Shapiro and Mark Shapiro, father-son baseball, not only experts, but senior executives for a long time. And it's a real treat. I don't think I've had a chance before to have a kind of a father-son combination, both as accomplished as you guys have been and are. And it's just a great opportunity. My second Psychoanalyst friends are going to give me all sorts of grief later. Why didn't you ask them about this and this? But we're going to talk about leadership and people and decision making and your careers as well. And I want to start with you, Ron. You've been in baseball a long time, but I think I recall from talking to Mark last uh, summer that you got into it almost by accident. Could you share a little bit about how you got into baseball in the first sure, place? Sure, and you might say son, father in terms of preeminence and what goes here, but I'll go first. Some people have called me the accidental agent. I had a career in baseball agency. I was also involved in some other sports and agency and television for quite a few years. And it spanned about 30, 40 years with various degrees of intensity. I should emphasize that all during that period, I was also a practicing corporate lawyer, securities lawyer, and so forth. I got into it because a guy who Mark probably inspired Mark to some extent, a guy named Brooks Robinson, got into terrible financial problems. And the Baltimore Orioles 
called upon me to help work him out of those problems. The owner of the team, Jerry Huffberger, had read about my work in as securities commissioner of Maryland when I busted a number of securities frauds. And Brooks looked like he was a prisoner of securities fraud. And so he said, can you help our hero? And of course, asking a securities corporate lawyer to help a baseball player is like asking a kid to go into a candy store. You know, I went into Brooks's home and into his life and worked him out of a mess. And to make a long story short, Brooks at the end said, hey, why don't you help other people? And the bottom line is, I said, Brooks, I'd love to do that. But what I'd really like to do is help them avoid the problems you had. And right. this was in the mid-70s, just when baseball was turning from a world of the Kurt Flood phenomenon, the McNally Messerschmitt phenomenon, where players had basically no rights and a very limited collective bargaining agreement to the era of free agency and arbitration. So the players all said to me, well, you can help us with that, but we really want an agent. I had the question whether I wanted to be an agent, but that was the beginning in 1975, I might add. At the time, there may have been 10 or 12 agents. Today, there may be 10,000 agents. And really? so there were- that was my beginning. And by the way, I chose to do it part-time because I never wanted to depend entirely on the agency world as my livelihood. I wanted to make good, clean choices. So I kept a foot in the corporate law world and in the agency world. And so for people listening who might not know who Brooks Robinson is, of course, the legendary third baseman for the Orioles Hall of Famer, one of the greatest third baseman in the history of baseball probably is right. And so I was surprised when you just said, because I was going to ask you that there were maybe a dozen agents at that time. I mean, what was it like to be an agent in the pre-free agency world? I mean, your hands were Well, actually, the collective bargaining agreement and the concept of free agency began to emerge at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was in the free agency arbitration world, but in the first year. Of, and what it was like was it was kind of pretty neat, Sid, because I ended up representing on the 1983 Orioles, the world champion Orioles, 21 of the 25 players on the roster. On the 1979 Orioles, I represented 18 of the players and word spread and I represented players on other teams. So, you know, you had sort of a dominance in the marketplace that made marketing a less important aspect of being an agent. I could focus on my players and their needs. And so that was, you know, everything you did was groundbreaking because every new contract had a new implication. So it was fun. It wasn't my primary fun, but it was fun. (laughs) And Mark, do you have any recollection of this when your dad was coming home and saying, yeah, I just spent the afternoon at Brooks Robinson's home and here's what I'm doing? Well, it was surreal. I mean, baseball, as I think you and I talked about, Sid, was a clearly part of the fabric of my childhood and clearly one of the many strong bonds with my dad, his passion for the game from him growing up in the streets of Philadelphia, playing stickball to loving the Phillies growing up to loving the Orioles and just taking me to games. And pretty quickly, almost instantly, I went from the kid hanging over the rail trying to get Brooks's autograph, you know, or waiting in line, which I have a vivid memory doing, trying to get Brooks to sign his book called Third Base is My Home, which I still have here, to Brooks ringing our doorbell and dropping off his 16th consecutive Golden Glove that he won as a gift for my dad in recognition of 
how much my dad helped his life and he knew my dad would never accept it. So he literally drove to our house, left the gold glove on the doorstep, rang the doorbell and left. And so, yeah, I remember that. I remember taking summer vacations with the Robinson family. You know, again, I went from just being a fan to him and then a trail of others, you know, following behind some not so famous, but still made a big impact on me. Almost all of them bound by a set of values that linked them and probably ultimately led them to my dad to be their representative. And I think that was a different time of agents. Agents now are about recruiting and retention. My father modeled agents as advocates. And I think that was what I saw him do. He was a player's advocate. Didn't mean he discounted at all, expecting to get the best deal for them. He did that and often better than most. But what drove his business model was that he was ultimately an advocate for his players. Advocate and advisor. By the way, Sid, we were talking about values. When Mark got Brooks's mm-hmm. autograph, he remembers being in line. I remember him saying, hey, Dad, there's Brooks. I'll go down and get his autograph. I said, yeah, you get in that line and get at the back of that line. <laughs> and when he got up to Brooks, I'll never forget Brooks looking at him and saying, what are you waiting that line for? But Mark That's waited funny. in the line and there was a message and Mark got the message. So how did the career connection happen for Mark? Growing up in a baseball family, seeing you, seeing the work you did, introduce and getting to know ball players is, yeah. but then there's a transition to actually working yeah. in and creating a career. How did that happen? Well, I mean, I think two things. One, clearly the passion for the game, you know, one, to the exposure to not just players, which set standards and expectations for me for what great players and true professionals look like materially, not in abstract. And then three, just the link to front office executives from Hank Peters to, you know, older executives like Joe McElvain, Jim Beatty, who was a former client and has obviously a tie to, to your to yeah, where you're sitting. My neighbor. Yeah, uh, right now. And then ultimately John Harden, Dan O'Dowd in Cleveland, who ended up hiring me. So I went, I accompanied my dad on many spring training trips, but one in particular, when I was in my first job in California, I went and met him in Phoenix and kind of did the tour of the Arizona camps with him. And I was unhappy at my first job for reasons that would probably be a good case study for you, Sid, and like leadership and culture. And it caused me to kind of think in a very young, maybe less evolved way about kind of what could be a career for me. And that led to kind of pursuing a career in baseball against my dad's recommendation. By the way, there's a backstory, Sid. And that is, Mark first said, can I come to work for you? And I said, no. He talked to my partner, Michael Moss, and said, hey, can I work for you? And Michael said, let's see what we can do. But my point to Mark was, Mark, take a few years and go out in the world. Don't work for your dad. Go do the world. And two, I'm not sure you want to be an agent. Yeah. If you really want to be in baseball, go on the other side and go there and really get the the joy of developing, working through it all. And he was so persistent because although I had relationships, I said, you write to them. You can use my name, but write to them. And he wrote letter after letter after letter until... Hank Peters and Dan O'Dowd and John Hart responded and he ended up in Cleveland. By the way, just one other quick one. I go out to visit him his first year in Cleveland. I'm so <laughs> proud of my son. He's made it to the other side. And he said, Dad, let me show you my office. 
and it was the old Cleveland Municipal Stadium. It was freezing. There may have been less than 5,000 fans <laughs> in the stadium. We were playing Kansas City, I remember, That's right. in mid-May, and, and the Cavs were in the playoffs, and no one was there. And Mark said, let me show you my office. And we go to a hallway, which may have been unheated, and there was a wooden desk and a chair. Mm-hmm. And that was my son's office. Yeah. Came a long yeah, way. And I was very yeah, happy. There is. And you were very happy with that. Exactly. And so you were with the Indians for how long then? 24 uh, years. And I know we talked about this when we first did an episode last year, but you had some pretty amazing mentors there. And, and I know there's plenty, but I'm thinking about Mr. Hart in particular, because his name has come up when, you know, when I did my research for super bosses, his name came up as someone that has just had a gigantic influence on the development of talent. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, is that accurate? And if you could say a little bit about sure. why that was. I mean, the biggest mentor I've had is on this podcast with me, but both John Hart and Dan O'Dowd are people who were highly influential. John, and again, it took some reflection, Sid, to maybe truly understand the power of what he did. But I think there has never been a person that has modeled empowerment and belief more than John. He now, only in hindsight, do I realize I was a 23, 24-year-old kid with big ideas and a vision. And John would just say, hey, you're a guy. I believe in you. Go do it. You want to change the entire player development system? Let's go. And John was a very traditional baseball guy, former player, former high school coach, former minor league manager, former major league coach and manager. So he was the old school spittoon in the corner of his office baseball guy. But he saw something in me. And more than anything, he made me feel that, you know, he wasn't insecure about you know, my education, my difference in background. So I would say, John, from a standpoint of the potential impact of belief in someone and what that can do when they work for you and the true impact of empowerment. And I've tried to pay that forward my entire career. And then Dan O'Dowd, who was John's assistant from a, just a disciplined work ethic, competitiveness, and a focus on hiring, you know, talented young people, which that legacy started in those Indians offices, not just with John, but with Dan. And if you look at the current tree of executives in Major League Baseball, a large number of them came out of the Cleveland Indians front office, crazy number, like 10 front offices are being run by former Cleveland Indians. Not John, not Dan. What's that? You had some influence on that, Mark. Mark, you had some influence on that, too. Yeah, it's not one person. That was kind of the legacy of that front office that we all recognized our obligation was to continue to hire good people. But it also was the foundation for what made those teams successful. Like, we obsess about hiring, obsess about it. And we did. Little backstory on that. Mark, I don't know whether you remember sitting in the old Orioles Memorial Stadium when John Hart would come by once in a while and say hi, but that wasn't the the real memory. When Dan O'Dowd, who worked for the Orioles at the time, would come and sit on the concrete steps next to our seats and talk about his desire to really move into the baseball world in a leadership role. And you were there and he was there and look where time and circumstance Mm -hmm. took you. 
You know, I'm wondering whether the two of you ever found yourself on opposite sides of the negotiating table. We did. Given what you were doing. You did. We did, yeah. So what happened? I think there were people who were threatened by my dad who tried to make a big deal out of that in the union. But when I became a general manager, we had some very good players, Jake Westbrook, Paul Shuey, numerous others who were representative of my dad and Michael Moss. And my response to people was, I remember going in spring training we were doing a long-term deal for Jake Westbrook and my dad came down. He had lunch with Jake and then he had dinner and spent the evening with me. Not one time in that entire conversation with me did the name Jake Westbrook come up or anything about his contract. And it just spoke to the, like anyone that knew Ron Shapiro knew that there was not gonna be any shroud of, you know, issue of integrity or blurred line. He was gonna do the best thing for Jake Westbrook, not for Mark Shapiro. That was his job. And that was, you know, what his covenant was with Jake. In addition, we put firewalls up. Like I didn't negotiate those deals with my dad. His partner, Michael Moss, negotiated those deals with my former assistant, Chris Antonetti, who's now one of the best executives in all of MLB. And we certainly both played a role in kind of guiding those negotiations for our respective best interests. But we had other people handle those and we did not directly deal with those. Ron, what was your take on that on your side? Of the well, team? it always started with I had to go to the union to get a clearance. That kind of feeling between union and management that exists today existed back then. And I worked out a deal where the union would allow me to go to the client, put in writing that I had this relationship and have the client waive it. And never did a client not waive it. I mean, they, so it made it easier because the clients had confidence in me. Frequently when I give corporate lectures, and even today when I give corporate lectures, people say, well, what was it like to negotiate with your son? And I would say, well, he read the same book I'd read. And he knew it was about preparation. He knew it was about asking questions and listening. We were both going to do the best job we can without having to play the game that agents and teams sometimes feel that they frequently have to play. And that is be adversarial. Because mm -hmm. in the end... I wanted relationships, whether they were Mark Shapiro or Hank Peters or John Sherholtz or whoever they may be, I wanted a relationship with that general manager after the fact, not just to have a friend, but to be able to assist in resolving problems that might come up with clients, to collaborate on the growth of clients. And so it worked very well. But there was a time of uncertainty when the union scratched its head and said, can we let this happen? And other agents trying to get my clients would say, we can't let it happen. Yeah. But it happened I, and it worked. I would say this said one thing that I really felt was formative in my early years as an executive was having been the son of an agent and thinking about that from perspective that it never really made sense to me, right? Like 98% of the time, the interests of the organization and the player align. Our sole focus is to put the player in the best position possible to be successful, to put up numbers, 
to, you know, make an impact and to win world championships, which will ultimately lead to him making more money. We want to pay players more money, you know, because that means they'll have had successful careers. There is only this small window once every two to three to four years or once a year where we're not aligned. And that's when we talk about compensation. And so I think I tended to focus on the 98% and not the 2% and accept the 2% for what it was. It's part of the business. And to me, that was because of how I was raised and the negotiation strategy that my dad not just employs, but has written books about, you know, and always thinking about building a foundation for a relationship that's mutually beneficial moving forward. For me, that meant I want our players to trust us to respect us and to know that we care about them. Like that's a separator. That's a competitive advantage for the organizations I've been a part of today and with the Indians. And then ultimately that negotiation is just a business reality. You know, that there is a, that we're not aligned on the compensation, but trust me, we want to pay you more. We do. We want to pay you more. Let me give you just one other quick example. And that's, and not on Mark's team, on another team, Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer, in the first five years of his career, was one of the most impressive players, catchers anyway, in, in history. I mean, two batting titles, MVP, all kinds of things. May have been Minnesota two, Twins. Minnesota Twins. And we then negotiated one of the biggest contracts ever for a catcher. It was $184 million, $25 million, $26 million at the time. It was a lot of money. Still is a lot of money. The bottom line is Joe had some serious physical issues. And that took a real collaboration with that team, with whom we had good relationships, with whom we had tough negotiations, just as in the case of Kirby Puckett on that team who suffered glaucoma. It took a lot of collaboration after the contract to do whatever had to be done to resolve those challenges. So that's why in the corporate world, in the baseball world, in any world, you want to do good deals and you want the other side to feel that it's got a good deal, mm-hmm. but you want to have a working relationship to build on that after the fact. And Mark does that. I try to do it. And that's you know how we approach negotiation. So how is the financial structure of Major League Baseball different than, say, the NFL, the NBA or mm-hmm. the NHL? I'm thinking about you know profit sharing or yeah, you know, dividing sharing. up the total pie is maybe the biggest. Yeah. Why don't we kind of share what it is? And I'm curious, how did it get to be that way? And why is it different? Why don't, I, why don't I try to give you the two minute overview and my dad can give you the historical context? Maybe, maybe not. But this is at its most simplest what makes running a major league baseball team far more challenging than any other sport. One, we clearly do not have a salary cap. Two, the revenue sharing system is largely local market dependent. So about 70-30. So 70% of most teams revenue comes from their local market. 30% comes from national revenue, which is the exact converse of the NFL, where it's about 30% local and 70% national. So if you just take that, for example, think about New York compared to Pittsburgh, that's going to create enormous disparity in revenue and resources. And as front offices have gotten smarter about how they deploy resources and don't just deploy it on talent, but also on infrastructure, people, systems, process, analytics, all those things, tools, you know, that challenge has gotten bigger and bigger. So ultimately, the combination of a revenue sharing system that is more local market dependent and no salary cap creates major disparity 
between teams and some serious competitive balance issues that don't exist with basketball because of the salary cap and with NFL because of the, the national revenue dependency. That's a quick answer, but those mm-hmm. are underlying challenges that we strategize against. We did in Cleveland because we had 25 teams to overcome. And we do in Toronto, even though we're a larger market because the exchange rate and because we're in a division with the Yankees and Red Sox, which are two of the top five teams every year. And having worked in both the NBA and the NFL on the organization side, by the way, not the player side, it's a different world. I mean, just more recently, as a result of COVID, whether they're fans in the stands, the NFL says, you know, two thirds comes to everybody right out of the national television contract. So that's immediately a much lesser issue. In basketball, it's not quite that way. There, there are some regional and small market, big market differences. From a negotiation point of view, in basketball, there is one of the most complex salary caps, full of exceptions, by the way. They have to have a full-time capologist on, on you know, two, two of them. In football, they have one, maybe. But, but the bottom line is dealing with salary caps and exceptions in basketball is a constant challenge. Dealing with it in football is a challenge because there is a cap. In baseball, as Mark described it, they're very different world and dependent upon very different revenue flows. How did it turn out that way? Is there some structural reason about baseball, more games? I don't know. Marvin Miller, he was the best. If you want to look at it from a union perspective, okay, Mm -hmm. he knew how to hold the line better than anyone. By the way, he was not the devil incarnate, as some baseball people have suggested. He was a very decent, honorable man, although he was excluded from consideration in the Hall of Fame for his impact until long after he died. But it was his strength that had baseball hold on to this. And then those who followed him were just adamant. They weren't going to be the ones to betray Marvin Miller. That's how I see it. Mark, you may see it differently. No, once revenue sharing is set and franchises are purchased on those expectations, Sid, mm-hmm. to ask owners to go back and say, you know what, you reside in New York, but you need to prop up the Cincinnati Reds. You need to prop up the Cleveland Indians. They're already doing that, but to tell them they've got to do that to a greater level to create more competitive balance, A, I'm not sure that really is what benefits the game and every owner is kind of 130th owner of MLB, not just their individual franchise. And B, you're never going to be able to kind of offset that value to the owner of the largest market teams who paid for their franchises based on that underlying assumption and understanding. Well, it's true. Some did pay for it, but many others perhaps have had it or in the family for years and years and have seen that asset grow to an incredible valuation that they may or may not have hoped for or predicted. But less now. That was very much the case 15, 20 years ago. Almost all those families are out of the game. The O'Malley. The Steinbrenners are one of the only ones kind of left, but there are almost none others at this point. Is the business model from the ownership point of view in baseball more about ongoing cash flow year by year in terms of an individual business, or is it about the selling? The asset's going to go up and up because it's a limited number. There's only so many teams and you can increase it a little bit. You're never going to increase it a lot. So I would say that cannot be generalized. The business models and the reasons why people buy baseball teams uh, vary from anything from from just a love of the game and wanting to own a baseball team and having that level of income and net worth that they can do it to a platform for other businesses, more and more real estate and kind of, you know, secondary and tertiary projects that dovetail off of owning a major league baseball team. But ultimately, if you're asking 
how the business model can most generally be viewed as one that makes any sense at all. I promise you, except for about five or six teams, it is not operationally. It is not annually, definitely not quarterly, and probably not annually. It is more in franchise appreciation, which you know is not a traditional business that just looks at, okay, Yes, the historical, the fundamentals may not say that drive your franchise appreciation, but the bottom line is there's a scarcity that creates a scarcity of opportunity to buy teams and a high demand. And Want a little history here, Sid? Um, Mark's grandfather sat in a room with me and 12 other Baltimore community leaders in the 1970s, late 1970s, when it looked like the Orioles were going to be sold out from under the community. And they just battled over the asking price of $12 million for the <laughs> franchise. And I'm not the smartest guy in the world, Mark may be, but, but I knew enough about supply and demand to talk about franchise value and how it would go up. And if they had to pay $14 million, it was worth it. They were going to split the, the cost of it. And ultimately, they rejected my argument. And a guy named Edward Bennett Williams came in and paid 13 8 or 14 And he kept them in Baltimore, by the way. He was a great criminal lawyer, by the way, Washington, D.C., who had run the Washington Redskins for a period of time. But that scarcity factor still plays a role, along with the romance of sports, along with the real estate that Mark talks about. More and more private equity people are in sports today. They're in it for the cash, but also in it to realize their dream. The cash uh, and the cachet. That's yes. right. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. So we're recording this the end of May. Of course, now it's about middle of June, just a bit before that. And so just look where we are today. I want to ask about it, at least two different dimensions. One is how on a personal level it's affected the work that you do in terms of leadership, in terms of dealing with people, in terms of your community involvement, which I know is extensive for both of you. And then after that, to talk about, well, what's going to happen with Major League Baseball? Is it going to open? What are some of the considerations that need to be worked out? Because I know a lot of people are interested in that. And I know you're not going to reveal anything that before it's time to reveal it, but I'm very interested in the thought process yeah, no, that goes behind. But let's start first with the personal community leadership side of dealing with COVID. You want to start, Dad? And I'll start. You know, I say to people, people call me probably on the phone now and on Zoom now more than have ever yeah. been. Concerned people call me and they always say, how are you doing? Right. And I say, I'm doing very well. I'm here in my home office. I'm able to communicate with people and do the things I have to do. I'm just adjusting. Where I'm losing sleep is over the people who are now seeking to survive because our society is becoming more and more divided economically and from a survival point of view than it ever had. So I'm troubled <laughs> in that sense. I'm troubled by polarized leadership, and that takes us into the political world. And I won't get political on this broadcast, but that polarized leadership affects business leadership and all kinds of. And so what I daily try to deal with, I'm dealing with an organization right now that wants to make substantial cuts to a magnificent CEO who's willing to take significant cuts. And, you know, everybody's living in fear in terms of what am I going to do? And these aren't survival people. These are people at a higher level. And how are we going to operate this business? And they seek expertise. There was a great section in the New York and then Sunday review section of the New York Times this past week, which talked about, you know, people make predictions, but that's all they are is predictions. 
We don't know where we're going with this. Our scientists have a pretty good idea in terms of what could happen, but we don't know where there are two parts, the science and the economics and how these two are ultimately going to work out. So in terms of my responsibility as an advisor to people, which is my big role today, it's to try to keep them calm, try to help them deal with uncertainties and try to have them prepare as best they can for multiple eventualities and also to try to think about other people out there, people in need now, who have greater needs than ever and to recognize that and find ways to support that. That's broad and general. You can push me more specifically. I mean, the contrast that we have seen, if anyone ever had any doubts, and this is about the U.S., but Canada, I think will be maybe a little better, but I don't know it'll be dramatically better. Between people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds and, you know, the three of us on this podcast and probably most of our listeners is unbelievable. And you see the differential pain that's happened. It's hard to say America is a land of equal opportunity and equal life because we're not seeing that at all. But I want to add one other thing. You said there's a health side, of course, public safety. There's an economic side. There was an interesting article by the president of the University of Notre Dame recently. I can't remember if it was the New York Times or Wall Street Journal talking about the opening, the plan to open Notre Dame, yeah, the University that. of Notre Dame. Right. And they haven't decided about the sports and that's so big there. And he said that actually it's not just a scientific discussion, it's a moral discussion. And he's a Jesuit leader himself. And so he's thinking about it in terms of what's morally correct. Now that overlaps with the health side as well, but I thought that was really an interesting perspective on that. Let me ask Mark about what's going on, not in terms of community involvement a little bit, but also you're running a big organization and people are suffering, people are worried. And how do you keep it going in a way that can be as positive as possible given the circumstances? You know, I I've just tried to, and this is much more granular than my dad's, you know, he tends to look at that incredible lens of wisdom and perspective. I'm thinking about it much more myopically, which I've got anywhere from 500 to 1,300 people whose well-being and anxieties, fears, and thinking about their families that I feel personally responsible for. I've tried to walk that line between the importance of being transparent and being open, but still being hopeful and optimistic. And, you know, that's hard. You know, I am still giving very bottom line, open understanding of these are the scenarios that we're considering. Here are the implications. This is the reality of our business. This is the potential realities of what our business could look like for two, three, four years down the road. Yet I'm still a believer in baseball. I'm still a believer in the role that baseball and sport can play in a return to normalcy and in lifting people's hopes and providing inspiration and lifting communities. So, you know, try to stick to the fact that we have put people at the core of every decision we've made and people at the core of what we feel is our competitive advantage as a business. So not just values wise, but sheer, but strategy and competitiveness. And so try not to make short term decisions that might offset some of the pain, but then will create longer term obstacles. And that's not easy. That's a tightrope that, you know, I and we as leaders of the organization walk every day. And then mixed in with that, Sid is our own 
personal lives. I mean, I'm sitting in one room almost every day. I have no diversity of interactions. They're all phone and Zoom. The scenario planning is relentless and shifts on 24-hour cycles. I'm dealing with city, provincial, and federal officials, public health officials, MLB officials, along with continuing to try to run our operation of a major league team and a corporate owner. So the stakeholders that we're trying to balance every day and then two teenagers that are sharing a home with me that you know have their own anxieties and fears. It's been a challenging juncture. I've tried to not think too big a picture and try to think more narrow and to focus on the areas I can control and be a little bit less informed than I normally would be because that can be so overwhelming and try to get back to the narrower lens of what can I control that can positively impact the people in my life and the business that I'm responsible and accountable for running. Yeah, it's actually very true about the massive amount of information and experts of all stripes that are not always experts to try to make sense of that. And I've always thought as a citizen of the world, you have a responsibility to be alert to what's going on and to try to help other people. Well, the being alert to what's going on is a full-time job and then some. And, you know, the term fake news has become a big term. It's actually a very clever term. It's all over the place. Uh, we don't know what's right and what's wrong. It's actually one of the reasons why in season two of this podcast, of the Sidcast, the first episode was with 10 scientists, two of the 10 on the podcast, that have been putting out a regular column through Facebook on what's real and what's not real. And I thought, wow, here's someone. And they're doing it in a way that's very basic to the average person for average people write in with questions. What are they worried about? What do they want to know? Should I send my kids to summer camp? For yeah. example, it's a pretty big one right now. What do I do about school and et cetera, et cetera. So what's happening now with players? We'll ask about the Blue Jays and then, you know, maybe Ron more, more generally as well for players you may be representing or through your connections. Where are they? What's going on? Yeah, MLB players are largely have gone back to their homes. There are certain players that politically like Venezuelans that could not return home. And so we're housing in hotels. They are like many other people waiting for news and certainty and an understanding of what the path forward looks like. Increasingly, and hopefully by the time this podcast airs, we'll have certainty as to what a an abbreviated season without fans will look like for MLB. And that would be important for the game, I think, not just for our fans, but even for the game in a path forward and a path towards a more normal existence. But, you know, I would say this, when people view Major League Baseball, they often don't understand that the Major League team is just the tip of the spear and that there's an entire organization underneath. So started 15 minutes ago, we have a draft call going on right now. The draft is in two weeks. You know, there are minor league players who are most likely never going to play this year, which is hard to imagine. But they're just like people out of work who have no place to go to work because, you know, there's a stay at home you know, order in their communities and their businesses are closed. So this is one time where, you know, we're not dealing with challenges that are unique to MLB. We're dealing with global challenges that people are facing at some scale and at some level throughout the entire world, not just Major League Baseball. We just have a disproportionate lens on us because we're sports and entertainment and people are looking to us to provide a distraction from everything else they're dealing with. Right. But, you know, Mark, what's different is for a Major League player or a Minor League player, they're career 
their working career is short and the best of times. And for someone else who's, I'm going to just say 22, let's say a kid could be A level, Mm -hmm. double A, who knows. If I'm 22 and I'm hopefully reasonably healthy, I could work 50 more years. If I'm 22, I'm in baseball. It'd be a miracle if I'm working 10 years later. In fact, maybe even three years later would be a bit of a surprise. So losing a year is gigantically serious. And, that, it, and it plays out into the economics of baseball as well, doesn't it, with the free agency and the schedule for that? It does for major league players. The minor league players you know, are just trying to get to the point that they can you know, play because you really don't make money till after you get to three years in the big leagues anyway. Yeah, all those things. I'm looking at those things, though, Sid, more through a lens of mental health. And Mm. how can we best support our players? So we've had an extensive effort through our mental performance coaches, through our EAP folks and through our general coaches to kind of reach out, maintain contact, get players to focus on the things they can control and not this enormous, you know, reality around us, which they cannot control and try to be constructive and positive with their time. And maybe most importantly, first take care of themselves and also take care of the loved ones in their lives. For some guys, that is families. For other guys, it's just themselves because of the subset of the population that we deal with and how young they are. But mental health is kind of the only area we focused on primarily. And then trying to think about baseball skills only because that's a constructive outlet rather than trying to figure out when are we going to play? What's it going to look like? What does this mean for my career? Like, I want to put those things aside right now. Get back to what you can control today. You know, are you living your life with intent? And are you doing the things that you can control within the world that we're in right now to ensure that you are finding ways to improve, maybe not just improve as a player, but also as a person? That's right. That's a principle that I think always applies to try to focus on things you can control and don't let all those other things make you crazy, which in this environment they can. Mark, can I I ask Mark a question? Please. So, Mark, in dealing with the players today, how much does your relationship with their representatives and the union impact in terms of the player's ability to trust that when you're looking out for their mental health, you're looking out for their mental health? Yeah, I mean, that can't be answered in a very general way. It has to be specifically. I think we have, when we came to Toronto, you know, led by our baseball operations, led by Ross Atkins, it was with the goal and intent to create the most player-centered organization in all sports. So player-centered, what does that mean? That means to put the players at the center of every single action of every system, of every hire, of every process, and to create a culture and environment where that is tangible and they feel that on a daily basis. If that only comes out in crisis and only comes out at an inflection point when you're dealing with an unprecedented historical and global challenge, you're probably going to be a little skeptical. But knowing that we have worked extremely hard to live that in all of our interactions and knowing that we are transparent when we say that there is a disconnect here in our business interests, but our human interest is to help you be the best you can possibly be. I feel like we've still been able to maintain those direct personal one-on-one interactions and you, have. you know, players know that we care about them and we're here to support them. You said you were going to ask me a question. Well, right. I wanted to know what your take was from the player's point of view. Well, again, understand, Sid, I haven't represented 
players for more than a few years now. Joe Maurer retired a few years ago. That was my last player by choice. So I've been on both sides of the fence. Let me rephrase that. But I, and I want to ask you this before I ask okay. Mark, which is what would you like to see happen now with Major League Baseball? In coming out of COVID. We're, now we're going to find out a little bit about what's talking, really going to happen. We're talking several weeks before this airs. And therefore... Well, 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> Not so, a lot. So what I'd like to see now, where I am Yes, today, exactly. Sure. ...is yeah. somehow a trust factor to be found. And, you know, one of the problems is that while I look at my NFL and NBA teams where I give advice... Because there is some clarity as to revenues and what they are in the minds of the unions that deal on behalf of the players, it's less of a financial issue. It's how can we safely reopen the sports? Okay. In baseball, in the context of where we are now, when I mediated the 1994 strike behind the scenes with Randy Levine of the Yankees, who's presently president of the Yankees, you know, the whole issue was what are revenues? Where are revenues? What's being hidden? And that continues to this day in baseball. And it makes coming to a resolution of some of these other problems more challenging. It also, you know, Mark said it so well to me the other day when he said, Dad, we want to get back to baseball and relevancy. I mean, it is relevant to the lives of our people, mm-hmm. you know, in America and Canada and, and elsewhere that people play baseball. They can turn on the TV if they can't go to the game and they don't have to watch the South Korean League. OK, <laughs> they can watch American baseball players. And right now, in the context of today, as opposed to when this may be broadcast, you know, there's some scrapping going on. And there are people out here scratching their heads saying, what's going on here? We're all suffering out here. Why don't we come up with a solution? Why don't we come up with a solution? And it's because this particular sport has this distrust factor. Although it exists in other sports, it doesn't exist to this degree. It's never been to this degree. So does this get us back to the salary? I mean, Ron, does this get us back to the salary cap issue? If there was a salary cap, everyone knows what the revenue is. You get this. I get this. We're all okay. Well, I know it's it, not that it, simple, it, it's but not that would that help? It's not that simple, but certainly salary caps simplify things, but they make them more complex from the perspective of a union because, you know, this is a a free and open and capitalist society. You know, owners can charge whatever they want. Why can't, why do we have to be constricted? And I'm not making the argument for one side or the other. I'm just saying, sure, it relates in part to the fact that there's salary caps in the other sports. I have a similarly simplistic answer, which is it is a trust and an alignment trust, issue. Trust. That's what trust. it is. It's a trust and alignment trust. issue, which is historical, clearly, that if we could align behind a common goal to grow the pie, to grow the game of baseball and recognize everybody benefits if that happens, mm-hmm. and if trust was the foundation in that effort, then we would not be as inefficient in all of our in all of these processes to move forward with the game, whether it's the rules of the game to adapt. And you and I have talked about these before, adapting the rules of the game to a changing world with shortening attention spans or whether it's competing in a more crowded uh, sports and entertainment landscape, all the things that baseball needs to do to thrive. But the biggest threat to the game, not thriving, but just existing in a meaningful Mm -hmm. way, is that there's just this history and this pattern of mistrust and lack of alignment that continues to consistently take our attention away from focusing on the things we should be focusing on. 
So, you know, as an outsider, I'm thinking, well, almost all the employees in this business are short-term employees. They're there for less than a year to a couple of years, occasionally a longer career. How is it for that this has been going on for so long, this lack of trust, this, this lack of alignment, as you both just described, how is it that it takes hold when you have so many new employees coming in that supposedly don't have all this history? You know what I'm saying? There's new people. And how does it just kind of take hold like that and become this roadblock? My dad would be a better one. It's, it's really... Well, it's, it, it, a, a history. It's, it's institutional in a sense. Let me try to do this and walk a tightrope, okay? In the context of the players, there are always enough players, a critical mass of players, who've been handed the baton from the prior generation of players that they can influence the new players to buy in. And the agents don't change a lot. And if agents are going to compete, they've got to be tough. They got to show they're tough. They're out there to, you know, protect players. And so they don't give a lot of breathing to the opportunity to dispel distrust. On the other hand, the other part of the institution are, is management. And I realize my son is part of management, but he's different. I talk to friends and I have many friends in ownership on different teams and I advise ownership in certain leagues and their view, at least in baseball, is it's a them and us. There are owners who will accept nothing other than them and us. Now, there are Mark Shapiro's and others who are willing to open it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two kind of frozen, almost yeah. frozen groups within the organization, and the baton gets passed. And that's what we're facing today in baseball. And I must say more than in the other sports. You know, it's only the past 10 years or 20 years in the NFL where I've gotten introduced to what goes on in those leagues. And they do have tough negotiations and things like that. But you don't feel this this feeling of it's them and us that you feel in baseball. Right. So there is a continuity of key players on both sides. Absolutely. Agents on the one hand and owners and maybe some executives as well. Absolutely. So sitting where we do now, what's the latest you could share, Mark, about Major League Baseball starting up? What, or, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I know it's still a bit up in I the air, but what, what's going on? trying to be green with timeframes. The gating issue right now is first negotiation with the union to agree that hopefully by the time this airs is done because that will be kind of a deadline we need to meet or close to done. That being said, we still need to continue to be deferential to public health and in each community. But it feels like a model of baseball where we play this year half a season, about 82 games in front of no fans with an expanded postseason is something that everybody feels is important for the game, for relevance, for a step to return to normal for all of us to have an outlet and for our fans to have an outlet. So it would be more of kind of a television production. It certainly would be historic. It certainly would be only transitional and not, you know, a reflection of kind of what the future of the game holds. But it feels like there's a good chance that'll happen. And what I would hope is by the time this podcast airs or shortly after, we're making plans to report to a three-week training period and then an 82-game schedule behind that that's largely played in stadiums, in, in teams' home stadiums without their fans there. And would it be teams be playing in their own cities? Yes. Yeah, that was, we've looked into the hub model that the NHL is going to use and the NBA, but we ultimately pivoted because of the recommendation of public health and the access to testing, which we created 
through converting one of our own testing facilities, a drug testing facility to a COVID testing facility, mm-hmm. where we were able to supply enough tests, not just for the industry of baseball, but also for the broader community. So a 67-page health protocol document was established. It was then evolved based on feedback from the union and individual public health organizations. So we have a very rigorous protocol that will guide this season, but it will be still with teams traveling and still with teams playing in their own stadium. Just if no fans. one player, sorry, Mark, if one player tests positive, what happens? That player will be quarantined, sequestered. All other players will be tested. People within that pod of segment of a population will be tested as they already are going to be tested on a, on a every couple day basis. But we will not shut down. We will keep playing. And kind of a worst case scenario of it spreading in a team so that there's not enough players to play. You hope that's not going to happen, but that's got to be part of the. Yeah, there's a model. Some contingency. There's a model of supplemental talent being created where that support yeah. talent would be then playing in a different location and able to offset even if a team loses 15 players that could be offset by those players. Again, yeah. I don't think what you're going to see like anything in life whether it's a return to a movie theater or a restaurant is going to be anything that is through the lens of what we view as normal, but it's an effort to return, an effort to get back in the most respectful way possible to the health of our fans first and our players as well. You know, if you think about it, most people experience a major league baseball game on television rather than in person. And that's true for all the sports. So in some ways, it's not quite that radical. One last question about this. I'm going to guess that there'll be changes that are going to happen because of this that cannot be predicted, probably from the fan base and the entertainment world. This just inevitably happens when you have this type of radical change. And some of them could actually be really interesting marketing opportunities. You may have already started to think about what they might be, having this deep, deep knowledge in the game. You're probably going to be alert to what they might be. I mean, you can imagine different online communication mechanisms that already exist. There's lots of startups, lots of companies that do this. Teams have their own things that are going on. I can imagine that could become a much bigger thing. And then things we don't even know what it's going to be like. So I'm saying that as a statement. I want to know for both of you, if you think that's right, and if if you speculate a little bit about what that might be, if anything. Yeah, my dad's written some pretty poetic things about the future, so I'll let him talk and I'll give him I'm not poetic on this, um, but I have been thinking, and one of the things I thought about, since this would be largely a home-bound audience of fans, Mm -hmm. is that baseball might figure out a way to use moments in games, which are not sold moments, but are fundraising moments, fundraising for the rest of society, which isn't taking money directly out of anybody's pocket. Maybe they could have sold the time. But look, baseball teams, baseball players responsible to their fellow human beings. This is a very difficult time. I've seen amazing amounts of money raised already in the entertainment context and in other contexts because people want to respond by helping others. So I think baseball has a unique opportunity with all the time they have between innings and games. They want to get the ads on. They want to get the revenue rolling to help others and to become even more relevant 
than the game. That's my dream. That's, mm. you know, can you do other things to raise money? Sure, you can engage in digital communication and have moments where fans can ask questions and do things and build from there. But that's where I've been focused on the societal need that baseball can satisfy. You remember the golf match with Tiger oh, yeah. and, and Phil and you know Brady, Brady and Manny. It raised, was it, over $20 million? $20 million. They thought unbelievable, 10 unbelievable. 12, but it was 20 Yep. Un- unbelievable. So just yeah, a thought. A real, I think there'll be a lot of things that, you know, people are so creative and we're seeing this, you know, you see so many of these orchestras performing, all kinds of things. And so that, this is going to happen. Yep. And it's going to happen around baseball. It's a certainty. I don't know exactly what. And it could be, some of it could be really interesting. Some of it might stay, it might yep. stick in some yep. ways. Yep. So we're just about out of time. So let me ask maybe each of you one last thing, which is maybe something you learned. If you could share something you learned from the other person, uh, Mark, from your your dad, Ron, and you've both talked briefly about this in various times, yeah. but if there was one kind of takeaway comment you want to make, Mark, what you learned from Ron and Ron, what you've learned from, from Mark. Yeah, there's no, I mean, it's impossible to condense that down to one thing. I think if there's one guiding lesson that was more modeled than spoken, that is with me every day of my life from the way I lead uh, to the way I live. Uh, That would be the compassion that my dad and the way my dad treats people without qualification uh, that he's lived his life. And so um, to walk with my dad through Baltimore when he was, you know, a mover and a shaker of that city, you know, hobnobbing with the mayor and CEOs, but to see him treat, you know, custodians and parking lot attendants and, you know, clerks, you know, at a, in an office building the exact same way as he treated the mayor and executives to not qualify human life as anyone's human life as being any more important. And just that, that level of compassion probably along with curiosity and learning would be the things that are most pervasive in my daily life. And frankly, the the kind of things I try to both ingrain in my children and in the organization I lead. Ron? Well, as a, as a father, it's hard to respond after that. <laughs> I'm a little... Soak it in. But, but, Soak but, it but in. You're a teacher of leadership and, you know, Going up to Toronto and and watching Mark translate what he spoke about today, true leadership, true empowerment, seeing people look to him for the okay to grow and be better and make the organization better. And seeing him today, Sid, I got to thank you for allowing me to be talk with you and him. It only reinforces what it's all about. That's love and family and values. Beautiful. It's been so interesting to talk to both of you and both of you together is really something. Uh, I might see if I could keep doing this on occasion on the SIDCast with other mother, daughter, father, son, brother, sister, because there's a whole other level of emotion that you just see and, and learning. So thank you both, Ron and Mark Shapiro. Thank you both for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank it's you, been a Pleasure for us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com 
Or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.